Welcome to the Gospel City Church Podcast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you would hear, be challenged, and encouraged by this week's teaching. Head to gospelcitynow.com for more information. Uh, so if, you, if you're new with us, we, for the past month, have been diving into the book of Hebrews. We're wrapping up chapter 2 today, and essentially what we've seen so far is Jesus is better. That's been the name of our series, Jesus is Better. He's the better revelation. He's better than the angels. He's higher and more superior than the angels. And if you remember contextually, uh, the writer of Hebrews, which we're not sure who it is, is writing to an audience that is second generation Christians, Jewish ethnically, but second generation Christians. And, and they had begun to think uh, a, a really high view, almost too high of a view of angels. There was that second temple literature that they kind of read a lot, which had a very high view of angels to the point that they were really struggling to see how Jesus was greater than angels. And that's what the writer is kind of setting straight for the folks uh, here. And, and specifically, last week and this week, uh, we kind of see that uh, that that the the reason that Jesus had to take on a a physical body that becoming a man, uh, a, a, you know, experiencing um, suffering, death, ultimately death on the cross, um, and and uh, the, walking through the trials and temptations. Uh, that we have, you know, walking in flesh and blood, that it was through this uh, that had to happen for him to um, become the, the Savior we needed. And we're going to see that through the Scriptures today. And, uh, and so, so we're going to see that him putting on flesh and dwelling among us is how he became the son of suffering and was able to save, how he's a high priest that identifies with our, our temptations and weaknesses, how he destroyed the works uh, of the devil. We're going to see all that. So that's, that's kind of where we're, where we're going today. And specifically, the writer's asking the question, if Jesus had a physical body, this is the question that was being asked, how, how then can he be higher than angels, right? Because for me, I've got a physical body, and I don't seem to be higher than angels. So if Jesus took on a physical body, how is he then higher than angels? And that's what the author of Hebrews is, is really kind of piercing through to give them truth. So let's dive in. I'm going to read the first uh, 10 through 13 here, and, uh, and then we'll stop for a moment. It says this, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, Bringing many sons to glory, if you underline, that's a great line to underline. We'll hit that a lot this morning. And bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he was not ashamed, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. First point I want us to really kind of dwell on this morning is that through suffering, Jesus became our perfect Savior. Now, let's walk through the text. It starts off saying, God the Father, uh, for whom and by whom all things exist, had this plan to bring many sons and daughters, I'm, I might probably just say sons, but just assume sons and daughters, to glory. This was the plan uh, that he enacted by sending his son to suffer and ultimately die on a cross and then rise again to bring many sons and daughters to glory. This is the plan uh, of God. And, and so bringing many sons to glory is what he sent Jesus to do. That, that was his plan. So he's bringing them to glory through the suffering and through the cross, 
And so the glory spoken of here, bringing many sons of glory, that's, our, that's the end goal. That's our salvation. That's, that, that's, that's where he's going to get us uh, uh, to. Now, God being both the, the author and the perfecter of our faith, as the scripture says, right? He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion, right? He's not just going to start something in you and then, and then not carry it on to completion. A great example of this is, is when the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt. If you remember, the Red Sea burst open. They walked through on dry ground. God drowns the Egyptians, and, and here they are in the desert. Now, they didn't mean to be there for 40 years, but, but because of sin they, and, and disobedience, they ended up being there for 40 years. And do you know what God didn't do? He didn't say, hey, you know what? I freed you. You're, you're free from Egypt. Carry on. Just You're fine in the wilderness. No, he didn't do that. Because that would not have fulfilled the promise. What was the promise? To get them to the promised land, right? And so he was with them, smoke, pillar of smoke and fire, carrying them all the way to, to the promised land. And in the same way for us, the, the promise, the, what he has done in saving us is glory. He's going to carry us to glory. And if he would not drop the, the Israelites who continued to rebel, continued to be disobedient in the wilderness, and continued to grumble and cry out to him, that's encouraging for us because it means he won't drop us either. That he's going to carry us all the way to the promise, which is glory. We hit his presence uh, for, forever. So this is true for you. It's true for me. Our destination, if you're in Christ, is glory. It's eternity uh, with him. And, 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 and we'll, he's going to see us through. He's not going to leave us. He'll never forsake us. These are promises of Scripture. He's, he'll never forget us. He will carry us to, to glory. Now, the rest of the text is going to teach us how, in fact, he's going to do that. Right. Because how then is Jesus going to get us from where we are to glory? We got to hopefully we got ways to go. Some of us got longer to go than others. Right. But but, you know, we, we got a ways to go to get to glory. How's he going to get us there? And the text begins to tell us that he put on flesh and dwelled among us. He became a merciful and faithful high priest. And, and we're going to kind of get into that. But he, he can walk with us in our temptations because he was tempted and still walked in holiness. So he can empower us to do the very same things. He can help us in those temptations. Now, a text that I, I got to sit on a minute is where it says that he was made perfect through suffering. You might be thinking, hold on a minute. He, uh, he was made perfect. through. I thought Jesus was perfect. If he was made perfect, does that mean that there was a time that he wasn't perfect? If he had to be made perfect, does that mean he was imperfect at some point and some magical thing made him uh, to, to be perfect, right? If, if he was made perfect, then maybe there was a time that he wasn't perfect. And, uh, and if there was a time that he was not perfect, then how could he come and be the sacrifice that we needed to appease the wrath of God? How could he do it if he wasn't perfect? Well, the perfection here, being made perfect through suffering, is not, it, it, it's not suggesting that Jesus was sinful. It's not suggesting that he was lacking. Uh, it's not suggesting that he was imperfect. What this text is talking about is that by fulfilling the full obedience to God the Father through, uh, you know, getting tempted and, and walking blamelessly in the midst of temptation, walking through life, suffering, even suffering death on a cross, like all that he did in his life fulfilled uh, and, and made himself completely pleasing to God the Father and made himself the perfect sacrifice for us, for humanity. So if he hadn't done those things, he would not have been 
made perfect through suffering. He wouldn't have been able to to be the perfect sacrifice. He was perfect in person, but he became uh, the perfect sacrifice through suffering, through obedience, and ultimately through death on the cross. And this is how he he earned our salvation and brought many sons to glory. A a quote that I think simplifies this uh, is F.F. Bruce. He says it like this. The perfect son of God has become the people's perfect savior. And I think that's the most succinct way to say that. And, and specifically, because of Christ's obedience, perfect obedience to, to the Father, Jesus has become the one source. The, the sacrifice of Christ has become the one source by which he saves, by which he sanctifies us, makes us more like uh, himself. Now, you see that text in there that, that he sanctifies. All sanctification means is it's set apart for holy purposes. So if he saved you, he sets you apart for his holy purposes, right? And, and anything used of God or for God is sanctified for, for, for holy means. So that's what Jesus' suffering on the cross accomplished. And that's what we're saying, right? By his wounds we are healed. He had to become a man in order to suffer so that he might be the sacrifice that we needed in order to be made right with God and to continue to be sanctified into the image of Christ. Without his suffering, we would have no hope. Without his death on the cross, we have no hope. And and even to the point you see where he says that he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, this is huge. We can maybe it was this is a quote from it's verse 12 there. This is a quote from Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22, in and of itself, is a very messianic, prophetic psalm, right? Uh, Psalm 22 is also what Jesus quoted when he was hanging on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's the same psalm. It's very very much pointing to uh, the the, the Messiah and the crucifixion of of the Messiah, right? And so this psalm was quoted to, to, to indicate that through his suffering, through his death, through his burial and his resurrection, that he accomplished what he set out to do. And what was that? As the scripture just told us, to bring many sons to glory. That's why he did it. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he died the death. That's why he was buried. That's why the resurrection, to bring many sons to glory. And not only that, but look what it says. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. And it says, and even join them in worship. The text here seems to indicate, you know, when the king would be victorious in battle, and this is kind of what the psalm points to, when the, when the king would be victorious in battle, he would get among his people and praise God or, uh, for, for giving them the victory over whatever enemy they had. So the king would get among the congregation and praise God for giving them the victory. And this is exactly what Jesus, it seems that the text is telling us that our king is getting among his people and praising God for the victory that was won on the cross on on our behalf. And so this text seems to indicate that Jesus is in our midst, and not only in our midst, but praising God along with us. Now, this is interesting for us. This should really spark us in a lot of different ways. It should spark us in our in our worship of God, because is there any greater Jesus juke when your like worship is stale and lame and you don't really want to sing than just picturing Jesus staring at you? Just do that. Right? He's not probably like that, but this is fun to think about. Like, like, like Jesus is in our midst. Like, how can we just sit and sip our coffee when, when we could sing the great truths of God? 
right? How can we sit with our hands in our pocket and just leave Jesus to sing the praises of God that he won for us on our behalf and we just kind of sit and stay out? No, the, the reality is when we come to worship, we are celebrating the victory that Christ accomplished, that God had planned to bring many sons to glory. One of those sons was me, was you, and we praise God for the victory that he's won on our behalf. This is what we come together to sing and praise and lift high the name of Jesus. These are the things that he has done for us. And that's why we come to worship. But I also love the question that it answers here without really asking it. But he says this, and maybe this is a a question that you've thought about uh, on your own. But he says, he's not ashamed to call you brothers. Have you ever thought that God might be ashamed of you? I mean, I've thought it at times, you know, like. Man, I'm, I've sinned again. I've failed again. God, surely you, you, you have some kind of shame towards calling me part of the family. But he, he's, look, look at the text. He says, behold, I and the children that God has given me. He's saying that you, he's not ashamed to call you brothers. You know, family dynamics are interesting, aren't they? I mean, they just are like we, you probably we all have brothers and sisters and maybe you've got a brother or sister that you'd be ashamed to, to be identified with. Right. Like, yeah, that guy that's drunk with his shirt off playing air guitar to Freebird, That's my brother. Right. You know, like maybe you're ashamed of that. And and uh, and, and certainly if we're going to flip the tables on what is shameful, if we look at our lives in comparison to Christ. We can say, surely Jesus would be ashamed to, to call me his. In a crowd, maybe there's all, this, all the disciples are kind of gathered around. He's like, yeah, that's that guy. I don't know. I'm kind of ashamed. No, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. And specifically, he bought us on the cross of Christ. He laid down his life on our behalf. He became flesh and dwelt among us so that he might die, become the son of suffering to bring us into uh, the kingdom. And to the point, not just to bring us into the kingdom and kind of turn a blind eye and say, man, I'm really shameful that they even get in here, but to say, no, behold, I and the children that God has given me. He's not not ashamed of you. You are part of his family and, 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 and that the Lord even boasts over you. He, he, that you are, under, you are in Christ, you're under his wing. And what does he say? Here I am. Behold, I and the children that God has given me. These are mine. I call them brothers and sisters. They're mine. And I'm, I'm not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. What a, what a glorious truth that it's not your merit that earns you the favor of Christ, but it's his merit and his work of accomplishment on the cross. And he calls us brothers and sisters. Now let's read on. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, Paul's right there. My second point is we see the death of death in the death of Christ. Now, I stole this title. This is actually the title of a John Owen book titled The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And the book is simply that. How did the death of Christ put to death death? And that, that's what's the point. And that's what we see in the text here that Jesus killed the works of the devil. He, he put to death 
death and the one who had the power of death. He took away that power through his own death on the cross. First uh, John 3, 8 says this, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But look at this, the reason the son of God appeared, the reason he appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Death and the fear of death were the consequences of Adam's sin. When Adam sinned, death came into the world, and from that point, fear of death came into the world. You know, it wasn't long when, you know, when um, Cain kills Abel, and then Cain's like, everybody's going to kill me. He immediately had a fear of, of death. And so, so death and the fear of death came quickly into the world with, with sin. And, and so the fear of death has kind of been Satan's strongest weapon in a lot of ways um, in, in the world. You know, is there any greater anxiety than the, that the world has than the fear of death? And is there any greater freedom for the people of God to be able to look death in the eyes and say, that is not an enemy is now a friend. That death is not my end, it's my eternal beginning. And so through the death of Christ, he has robbed Satan of the power of death and the power of the fear of death. And so we, don't, we have no reason to live in slavery to that fear anymore because, um, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For in Christ we're his both now and forever. Now, Satan's power over death is strong. It's real. It's a real thing. But it's not absolute, right? His power over death is still under the rule and reign of God Almighty. I was asked in a Bible study I lead the other day, who's more powerful, God or Satan? Like sometimes we have this uh, unbiblical ideal of, of spiritual dualism, right? That they're kind of they're kind of warring it out. They're on the same playing field. They're on the same level. Who's going to win? Maybe even you think that in your own life, you, you know, it's characterized as, you know, an angel sitting on this shoulder or the devil sitting on this shoulder and who's going to win out in our life. But the reality is that God is far more powerful than the devil by a long shot. It's not even close. As a matter of fact, you see that in the book of Job when, when the, the enemy has to come into the presence of God and even ask for permission to bring suffering to Job, to try to get Job to turn his back on God. He needed permission to even do that. So everything he even does is under the rule and reign of God Almighty. God is sovereign even over him. John Owen says it like this, all of Satan's power over death was founded on sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. If this obligation was removed, Satan's power would also be taken away. That's exactly what happened in the cross. Jesus took away, took on himself the sin of those who would believe, and in so doing, destroyed the power that the enemy has over you. No more fear of death, no, no more power of death over you he's taking it away now yes though under god's rule and reign the, the scripture is abundantly clear that that we have an enemy and that enemy is to be taken seriously i mean he's called uh, that he was the murderer from the beginning uh that he he has the power to harm some people to some extent right he's a roaring lion seeking those whom he might devour he steals kills and destroys right and so so he is our enemy he is our adversary and and he might use means or sins to kind of get to us and get in our lives but 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 and he he brings nothing but death to lives and to the world but this text shows us that though he may nip at our heels 
He's still under Christ. God has taken away his power of death over you and the power of the fear of death. So we have no need to live in slavery over the fear of death. Another commentator named O'Brien, he says, this does not mean that the devil has been annihilated or obliterated. His power has been removed. The overthrow of death and the devil has begun, but is not yet complete. Now, we talked about this last week with the now and the not yet of the kingdom. The power of death and the power of the fear of death has been taken away, but obviously he, he hates everything that, that is God. He hates everyone made in the image of God. He, he hates uh, anyone who claims Christ, that, that, that the Holy Spirit resides in. He, he, he hates all that and wants to destroy the works of God in the world. He's continuing to do that. Uh, and, but, again, uh, he's on a leash. Um, he can't do anything outside of the authority of God. And, uh, and, and so he, he still bows his knee to our, our great God. So how, again... Did Jesus destroy the works of the devil? By putting on flesh and dying. Now, this is not a battle plan that we would have dreamed up. Right? Satan, God of this world, ruler of the whatever. And we are thinking, how are we going to defeat the devil? Oh, we got an idea. Let's, let's let God put on flesh and dwell among us and then die. We wouldn't have thought of that. But that's exactly what had to happen for sin to be defeated. That, that, and we'll talk about this in a moment, that Jesus had to put on flesh and dwell among us. We, we wouldn't come up with this plan for a couple reasons. One is because we think so little of sin. We think so little of sin. Um, you, you know, but the reality is that sin needed and required the perfect Son of God to be sent to the world and put on flesh through a miraculous virgin birth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to redeem people. That had to happen. And that's how serious sin is. It's, it's not to be toyed with. It's fire. Or we may have a low view of God's holiness. That, that sin and the wrath of God doesn't just get swept under a rug. It can't get swept under a rug. That it is, it, it, if God is wrathful, he's wrathful forever until that wrathful is extinguished on something. And in eternity, it's going to be extinguished on one of two things. It's either going to be extinguished on humans forever. They'll pay the just penalty for their sins forever because the wrath of God will fall on them. Or those in Christ will have the wrath of God that has fallen onto the Son of God. So Jesus had to be sent, the God-man, to live perfectly and to die perfectly in order to make the far from perfect perfectly fit for heaven forever. Let me say that again. Jesus had to be sent to live perfectly and die perfectly in order to make the far from perfect perfectly fit for heaven forever. That's what he had to do. Jesus didn't take on the nature of angels. You see in the text, why? Because he didn't save angels. He had to take on the nature of humans in order to save humans. And in many ways, Christianity stands or falls on this idea of the incarnation. Jesus putting on flesh and dwelling among us. Now, the incarnation didn't save us in and of itself. He had to go to the cross and die the death. But without God putting on flesh and dwelling among us, he would have never been able to be our representative to God the Father. And that's exactly what we're going to get into now as we finish out the text. 17 and 18 says this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the last point is just propitiation and a priest. Now, let me teach you this word propitiation. It's in the Bible a couple of times. Essentially, what it means is it's an atoning sacrifice that both puts away sin, but also satisfies God's wrath. That's what propitiation means. Now, uh, Jose read this verse earlier. I'm going to read it again to you. I'm going to read it a little slower, so I want us to really grasp what's being said here in Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's talking about Jesus. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now look, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And then look at 26. It was to show this righteousness at the present, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, so let me, let me break this down. Jesus' blood propitiated or satisfied God's wrath. What, what propitiation simply means is it that, that, that it does, the sacrifice of Christ did two things. It expiated our sins. That means it took our sins and, and cast them away from us. But it also propitiated the wrath of God. So prior to us coming to faith in Christ, the, the, the wrath of God was aimed at us. And rightly, we sinned and we sinned plenty. Right? We were great at it. And so the wrath of God was aimed at us. As a matter of fact, the scripture goes as far to say that anyone that has not yet come to faith in Christ, the wrath of God remains on them. So, so before Christ, the wrath of God is aimed at me. When I place my faith in Christ, what has happened in that great exchange is that the wrath of God aimed at me, I deserved it, I should get it, was propitiated or pointed to or directed towards Christ on the cross. And so the wrath that was meant for me, that I deserved, that I earned, was put on the one that didn't earn it and didn't deserve it. And so the very wrath of God was propitiated by faith, by his grace, propitiated to Christ to, to, to free me and to appease God on my behalf, to satisfy the wrath of God on my behalf. So now, because of faith, because of his grace, when God the Father looks at me, he no longer sees a mountain of sin and burns with wrath towards me because that wrath has been satiated in the cross. When he looks at me, he sees the perfect, righteous, beautiful blood of Christ that covers me and says, I am pleased with him. My wrath is a peace. He's in Christ. And Jesus stands over us and says, Behold, I and the children God have given me. Boastful for the victory that he's won for us on the cross of Christ. Glory be to God. He's propitiated our sins. And in propitiating our sins, 
God then is both the just because he had to, he had to put, he couldn't just ignore our sins. He couldn't just be this cosmic janitor that rolled our sins under a rug and forgot about them. Because he would cease to be righteous, he would cease to be holy, and he would cease to be God. In order for him to be both the just and the justifier, wrath had to be poured out. And as I said at the beginning, it will be poured out in one of two places, either by faith on the cross of Christ or on you for eternity away in hell. What hell is, is the pouring out of the wrath of God on you forever. That's what it is. And it will be extinguished. The wrath of God will be satiated. And so we as believers are the ones that says, I want to be in Christ. I want to be in Him. In Him is refuge. In Him there's, we have life. I want to be hidden in Him. Just as the Passover talked about that the spirit of death came through the village and every door that had the blood of the lamb on the house, the, 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 the spirit of death passed over. And if they didn't have the blood, he went in and killed the firstborn. In the same way, in Christ, we were passed over by the wrath of God. It is absorbed in, the cross of, in Jesus on the cross of Christ, and we stand as free sons and daughters being brought to glory. That's what propitiation is. And God stands as both the just and the justifier. He's holy. His wrath needs to be satiated. But he's also the one who sent his own son. And God the son laid his life down to be the one who justifies us. He's both the just and the justifier. Without this propitiation, there is no gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the, you see, we, we oftentimes really lighten what has happened. You know, Jesus loves you. Just trust in him. He, you know, he'll bring you to heaven forever and all these things. No, there, there is an exchange that happens that is far graver than you could ever even imagine. It's far more serious than we can even contemplate. That our sins, that he who knew no sin became my sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. Propitiation is the heart of the gospel, and without it, there is no gospel. But then look in here. It says that he was a merciful and faithful high priest. He had to be made into a merciful and faithful high priest. Unless Jesus became fully human in every respect except sin, he, he couldn't be our representative before God the Father. In the Old Testament, you had the priest, particularly the high priest. The high priest would stand as the representative of the people unto God. So he would be the one to make the, go into the Holy of Holies and make the sacrifice unto God to forgive the nation. He was the representative of the people unto God. And Jesus became our merciful, because we didn't earn it or deserve it, but it was his mercy, and faithful unto God, high priest, that became the representative on our behalf to God the Father. The scripture says it like this, is that there is one mediator between God and man. It is the Son, Jesus Christ. So he had to put on flesh in order to, to, to become as like us in every way, in order to die to represent us unto God the Father. C.S. Lewis says it like this. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Without him putting on flesh and dwelling among us, we have no hope. We have no way to life. Now, so what? 
What does this mean? Well, I think the encouragement at the end of this text is that when we are tempted, we have a Savior who is our merciful and faithful high priest who's been tempted like us in every way. I'd point back to the beginning of chapter 2 and it says, how can we neglect such a great salvation? Let us not drift. You know, when we experience trials, when we experience temptations of many kinds, our tendency is going to be to drift away from the Lord. And what Hebrews 2, the entirety of, is telling us is not to drift away, but to cling to him, not neglect this great salvation, see him by faith. And do you not understand that what you are going through, you have a representative that knows exactly what you're going through. There's a phrase that a lot of people like to use when they experience trials or suffering or different hardships. They say, well, no one knows what I'm going through. That is a lie. Now, I might not know what you're going through, but you have a merciful and faithful high priest that knows exactly what you are walking through. You experienced some kind of persecution because of your faith. You don't think you had a savior that was spit on and mocked on, mocked because of his, because of who he was. You experienced suffering of some kind. Maybe you lost a a job or you had a friend turn your back on on you. Let me remind you of our Savior and his disciple named Judas. You don't think you're walking through something that's painful or difficult or cancer or or, or some kind of uh, surgery needed to get your health. You don't think you had a Jesus that took stripes on his back and flogging that ripped skin and bone from his body and took a a crown of thorns and implanted it into his brow. You don't think you've got a Savior that knows what you're walking through? The truth is you do. And he, when no one else is, he is a merciful and faithful high priest to you. And not only is he some far off high priest to you, he stands over you and he says, behold, I am the child that God has given me. This is your savior. This is the son of suffering. All praise to the king. All praise his name. I would just encourage you. Maybe you're here. And the wrath of God remains on you. This is not a a hobby we do on Sunday mornings. This is not a game. This is not a joke. That is a very serious eternal situation for you. And I would plead with you to come under and bow your knee to Christ. And in faith, hide in him from the coming wrath of God. Come and have your sins removed. And have the wrath of God appeased by faith. But trust in him and his work on the cross. And that's exactly what we're going to take a moment to think about, to reflect on, and to celebrate as we take the Lord's Supper together. I want to give you a couple of instructions, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll pass. But 
What we celebrate in the Lord's Supper together is everything I just preached. <laughs> that His body was broken. He had to put on a body to be broken. That body broken for us gave Him, made Him uh, perfect through suffering, become the perfect sacrifice so that we would have a merciful and a faithful high priest. When we take of the bread in a moment, we, we remember that he lived the perfect life of obedience and f- fully to the Father and we, that we couldn't live. We celebrate that in that. When the blood is poured out, we recognize that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, that that, that shedding of blood of him on the cross and taking the wrath of God in our place, that's what we're remembering. That's what we're c- celebrating. That's what we're praising God for. Saving wretches like us. A couple of just distinctions here. This is for believers. So if you're not a believer, uh, I'm glad you're here. I wouldn't want you anywhere else. I love that you're here. Uh, I would just caution you, and, and we, we, we would rather you pass than take <laughs> because there are grave judgments on taking and not being a believer. And so I would, I would caution you to say, just let it pass. It's great. If you have children in here that are not yet believers, I would say don't let them take and explain to them the gospel. What we're going to do is we're going to pass in a moment. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing together and pass and give you just a moment in that song to reflect and examine your own heart and let the Holy Spirit kind of examine your own heart. And if there are things that you need to confess to the Lord, now's a great time to do it. And then I'm going to come up, and we're going to all take together. I'll lead us in taking together, so you'll hold it until that time, and we'll, and we'll take together, okay? So it should be pretty clear. Let me pray. Father, what an incredible plan to bring many sons and daughters to glory. That you are the just and the justifier That it was the only way to save a people unto yourself. For sin is serious and deserves wrath forever. Even the smallest of sins deserves eternal separation. But God, being rich in mercy, slayed his own son to ransom a people unto himself. And to those who are being saved, this is life. And to those who are perishing, this is foolishness. Father, I pray if there's someone in here that is on the road to perishing and the wrath of God remains on them, that your Holy Spirit would move in their heart, regenerate it, bring it to life, faith and repentance. You would open their eyes to see the truth of the gospel. And the truth that it's not our morality that makes us children of God. It's not our good deeds or good behavior or church attendance that makes us children of God. It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would bring faith and repentance as gifts and give them today. We love you, Lord, and we celebrate 
crucifixion of Christ on our behalf. We remember the body broken for us and the blood poured out for us. And we lift high the name of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel City Church Podcast. We hope you found encouragement, inspiration, and biblical truth that will challenge you and help you grow in your relationship with God. Our mission is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the city and to the church and to see disciples who follow him wholeheartedly. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. This will help us reach more people with a life-changing message of the gospel. You can also visit our website at gospelcitynow.com to learn more about our church and our ministry. Remember, the gospel is not just a message to be heard, it's to be lived. So let us be sent out this week boldly bringing hope, love, and truth to the city and the church. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to next time.